Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Wayne Lickerman. And uh, Wayne was recommended to me by several people who listen to the show, as often happens. In fact, I prioritize people these days according to how many recommendations I get, and Wayne got quite a few. So, so I invited him, and he graciously responded. And um, it's like I didn't know much about you, Wayne, before... Um, well, actually, prior to a week ago when I started listening to uh, your audios, and I've listened to probably, I don't know, six or eight hours of them now, things I pulled off YouTube and everything. And I must say I was very pleasantly surprised. And it might sound strange that I would say that, but I had heard that, you know, in, in your early days you had, you know, been a bit of a drinker and drugs and all that stuff, which you talk about in your YouTube videos. And um, I was raised by a, a father uh, who was an alcoholic and um, I saw the toll that it took on his brain and his clarity and so on and so when I, the first few words that came out of your mouth it's, I thought whoa this guy is is <laughs> completely different than my father <laughs> very clear and articulate and um, insightful and uh, a tribute to the resiliency of the human nervous system Indeed. <laughs> um, and we'll perhaps go back and get into that into your whole story. I've heard you tell it, but my, may, many of my guests may not have and might find it kind of fascinating. Uh, but the one thing I gleaned from listening to you all that time is it, it seems to me, at least from the stuff I listened to, that the, the kind of the centerpiece of your teaching is the whole issue of the authorship of action. And I've heard you say many times now that, you know, around the age of two, two and a half, we develop this sense of possessiveness or authorship of, of our actions and that, that that kind of calcifies or congeals until we completely take ownership of it and that the enlightenment or awakening process is a kind of a, I don't know if you would say a reversal or a, 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 a moving beyond that, a, a breaking through of uh, back to a realization of who or what really is the author of, of actions. Is that a, a, a fair synopsis? That's a fair synopsis, sure. Okay. As far as it goes, yeah. Why don't we have you elaborate on it a little bit, for starters, because I'm sure you say it a lot better than I would. Well, the, the basic principle is that, or the basic pointer of the teaching is that at approximately the age of two years old, all human beings develop a sense of being separate, independent, authoring entities. By authoring, I mean that we are the ones ultimately responsible for what we do, that we create it, that we're the source. And it's a sense that is shared by virtually every human being. And it is uh, very much part of our culture, it's very much part of our religions, uh, it's certainly part of our education, our parents reinforce it. It's a, it's a, a notion that is uh, accepted by virtually all human beings. The question and the, this teaching uh, that I call the living teaching it raises is, is it true? Is it actually the case? Are we separate, independent entities capable of authoring entity? Anything. That's the, that's the real basic question. Mm -hmm. Now, if you ask me, Rick, raise your arm, you know, I can raise my arm like that. Or I might think, no, I'm not going to raise my arm. It seems that I have a sense of choice, you know, of volition. I can, I can do or not do what you ask me to do. And so there, there's a sense of authorship, you know. 
Um, so what about that? Well, there is certainly the ability to do various things. You, you, you as a human being do have the ability to think. You have the ability to, to decide. You have the ability to uh, uh, do all kinds of things, you know, not just raising your hand. But the question, the ultimate question is, are you the source of that? Now, so we have to, it, you know, it's not a simple, it's not a, a simple inquiry. It's really quite deep. Because obviously on the surface, we decide all kinds of things and we do all kinds of things. That's not really the issue. The issue has to do with a much subtler sense of authorship. And that is that we were the ultimate source of the decision to raise the hand and that we were the ultimate source of our having done it, of having raised it. And when you you look into that a little deeper, you realize you don't have the ability truly to control whether your nerves function. In order for your hand to raise after your decision to raise it, a billion different, very complicated things have to happen, none of them over which you control. I imagine it is you've experienced uh, sometime you decided, I'm going to get up and walk across the room. And your foot's asleep. You decide. You say, yes, I'm going to do this. I have the free will power to walk across the room. I'm going to do it. And your foot's asleep. You can't do it. You right. fall. Or a person might be paralyzed, you know, through some disease or injury or something, and they, they have the intention to do things, but their body is not cooperative. Right. So this what we're looking at here is that what we claim to be our author doing is in fact not truly our author doing but part of the functioning of a much bigger system well certainly we don't understand the mechanics of how we do things i mean i don't understand the mechanics of how my car works and yet i can i can drive it and uh you know i sometimes. i have control yeah i have control over its direction and, and sometimes. so on. sometimes it may break down on me or whatever well, uh, but i don't understand really how the engine works i couldn't right. fix it right. uh and so same with the body i mean when i lift my arm there are all kinds of neurons filing firing and all sorts of things going on that i don't understand but right. it's still I, i'm sort of there's a sense that i am the operator of this machine yes there is a sense of that mm -hmm. What we're looking at is to, to uncover a deeper truth. Right. And that is to determine if you are, in fact, the instrument through which all of this functioning happens, or whether you are the source of that functioning. Yeah. So are you saying, when you say you in this sense, are you saying whether you are the instrument, meaning my body is the instrument, or, or whether, whether the real essential me is something more fundamental than the body? What I'm saying is you, Rick Archer, with your history, your body, your mind, your qualities. Uh -huh. That's when I talk when I say you, yeah. that's what I'm referring to. Right. Okay. And uh, I have no trouble with personal pronouns in my <laughs> Yeah, me neither. It, it gets very uh, awkward to have a conversation if you do have trouble yes. with <laughs> So so if I am okay, so I I'm with you on you know the body not being the source of the the motivation or the or even essentially what I am. I mean, you know, if I lose an arm, I don't become less of who I am than if I have the arm. 
And I, I, I personally believe that when I lose this body, I won't become less of who I am than, than I am now. But if, if, if I'm not this body, and then who am I or what am I? Okay. And this is where in, in the living teaching, I, I like to use the metaphor of the ocean and the wave. Uh-huh. It's a good so uh, to me, it's, it, it's a, probably the most useful metaphor for uh, talking about what is really a very complex subject. Mm-hmm. And so in this metaphor, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but not all of your viewers will be, the uh, everything, all that ever was, is, could be, is con- thought of as the ocean. Yeah. And there is nothing other than ocean in this metaphor. Mm-hmm. And all of the objects in the universe are, uh, in this metaphor, waves. Right. They are movements of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And all objects have the same properties as waves, being that they have a beginning, a duration, and an end. Mm-hmm. They have a shape, a structure, a size. Right. Uh, features we can talk about. Uh-huh. So uh, we, Rick and Wayne, are waves. The essential pointer of the teaching is that what the wave is, is nothing other than ocean. Right. Okay. Now, what, where this all gets really complicated and kind of funky is that from the age of two, we have the sense that we're not waves. We're separate, independent drops. Mm-hmm. That's our sense. We are separate, independent, and powerful drops. Do you think that prior to the age of two, we have a sense of our oceanhood? But, you see, when we talk about the wave, Uh the wave is ocean. That's the most important thing to keep keep in mind. But it's kind of a matter of what you identify with, isn't it? But even when you identify as the wave, what the wave is is ocean. ocean. Yeah, you can't not identify as ocean. If you're identifying as wave, you're identifying as ocean. Yeah, you might lose sight of the fact that you're the ocean, as you just said. You might think you're a separate drop, but you're mistaken. Okay, but that's not identification as the wave. That's identification, a false identification, a false sense of being a separate, independent drop. Right. Which is what most people have, and what we're really examining in this when we talk about authorship yeah. because the sense of authorship is completely tied to the fact of being a separate independent drop so you would say just to, not to put words in your mouth but to try to clarify that the extent to which you identify as a separate autonomous drop as it were uh, kind of equates with the extent to which you assume the authorship of your action. And conversely, if you identify more with the ocean aspect and, and not merely as a drop, then you begin to um, attribute authorship to something more fundamental than your individual expression. Yes, but once again, it's not the ocean you're identifying with. It's yourself as a wave that you're uh-huh. identifying with. And yeah. implicit in that identification is yourself as ocean, because that's all that the wave is. Mm-hmm. Although many people speak of, you know, having a realization in which they um, 
sort of settle into a vast, universal, expansive kind of awareness where they, you know, experience, not just understand, but experience that, oh, I am, you know, not just this individuality, I'm really the foundation and, and the sort of the essence of everything that is, that sort of thing. That's what I talk about as waveness, because the, the, there is no experience of oceanness. Ocean has no quality. None. There's right. no possibility of, a, of experience as ocean. Uh -huh. All experience happens at the level of duality, at the level of the, of the waves. Yeah, experience meaning, you know, there's an experiencer, a mechanics of perception, an object of experience. That's all happening in the realm of waves. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so, let's say, how would you describe your subjective experience right now, talking to me, sitting here? What, and how is it different than it might have been 20 years ago? What, there is no additional understanding mm -hmm. that has come about in these last 20 plus years. 25 years ago, let's say, there was a addition to my awareness, to my perception. That addition was the addition of the sense of personal authorship. Mm -hmm. It was the addition of the sense that I am separate and independent. When that disappears, it is not replaced with the sense that I am the vast oceanness. That is the dualistic experience of seekers, where you flip back and forth between the experience of separation and the experience of unity. Mm -hmm. But when that false sense of authorship finally dies, there is no longer any flipping back. There is no longer any experience of either separation or unity. So what is there? Pure presence. Ah. Pure isness. Okay. The ongoing eternal moment of what is, as it's playing out in everything. Isn't presence and isness and, you know, words don't words like that point to the sort of unity that, you know, people talk about in spiritual circles? Is... I think... Or maybe it it's all a matter of how we define our terms. Well, I think it does point to exactly that. The, there, the problem, of course, is that the pointers are um, Im vastly imperfect. Yeah, yeah. Words just are sc scratching the surface. Exactly. Right. And so they're useful as pointers. But as yeah. Ramana Maharshi said, you know these these concepts, these words, these tools are like thorns that are used to remove other thorns. So if you have a thorn embedded in your foot, you would use another thorn to remove it. And then the point he made was at that point, both the thorns are thrown away. Yeah. Yeah, that's a age-old Indian metaphor. <clears throat> um. So we we started out by talking about you know the authorship of action. So what do you feel now is the impetus for your action? Uh, you know what is it, or who is it 
that is driving your or motivating you to do things? I am uh, reminded of a Zen haiku uh -huh. that I like very much, which is, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Ah, that's a good one. I mean, the Gita, as I'm sure you're aware, is full of verses like this about how, you know, I do not act at all. It's the gunas of nature that carry on, you know, all the activities and, and so on and so forth. Right. And then, and then, conversely, and, and you know, it may appear paradoxically, they, you know, Krishna turns around and says, "You have to do this action. You know, get out there and do this. You know, and if if I did not act, what would happen to these three worlds, and so on and so forth." So there's this sort of avocation of action, and yet, uh, you know, uh, explanation that in reality there is, you know, it's it, one does not act. It's the na it's nature that's acting. A uh, an example of this was uh, given by my guru, this uh -huh. uh, fellow Ramesh Balsekar. And Ramesh's guru was a, a fellow named Nisargadatta Maharaj. Right. And uh, when Ramesh was, uh, when he retired from his job as the president of the Bank of India, he went to, uh, to sit with Maharaj and eventually began to translate for him. But uh, in the early stages, he would sit with Nisargadatta, and Nisargadatta was was a, a non-dual teacher, mm -hmm. whose point was that consciousness, what his name for the ocean, uh, consciousness, he says, does everything. That if all there is is consciousness, consciousness does everything. You do nothing, and. Then, in the very next breath, he would say, to realize this, you must be earnest. <laughs> you must want this more than anything. And Ramesh said, he went home and he tore out his hair. It drove him crazy. How can this man sit here in one breath say, you do nothing? And in the next moment, say, you must be earnest. You must want this more than anything. Until it finally dawned on him, he realized that what Maharaj was saying was descriptive. What he was hearing was prescriptive. Mm. So what Maharaj was saying, this is what you must do. This is what must happen. There was never the slightest sense, you know, in Maharaj's uh, mind that you could possibly author anything. Hmm. But you must do it. Yeah. In order for this other thing to happen, you must do this. But what Ramesh was hearing was through a filter of, of authorship, of the sense of, of I'm the one responsible for doing things, is that I must somehow develop this quality of, of earnestness, that it's incumbent on me to do it, that I, I am responsible somehow for this. But that wasn't the message at all. And I respectfully say that that was Christian's message as well. Yeah. You must do all of these things, but you're going to do them or not do them, not from your own egoic power, but as an instrument of consciousness or the sort. Absolutely. I mean, he said, uh, what was that saying? Yoga star Kuru Karmani, established in being or presence or whatever you want to call it, perform action. And so, he, you know, his, at, his prescription was first get, your, get established there and then go out and do, do all this stuff I want you to do. Uh-huh. 
And you know, this thing about description prescription is a perennial theme during my interviews because I, you know, I hear it a lot among spiritual teachers offering a description as a prescription. You know, they'll sit and kind of describe their state or some state of exp- some state of realization and then deduce from that that it applies to people on the level of behavior. On the, you, you know what I mean? I mean, do you hear this? I am. I don't. You watch don't listen. Any, you don't listen to any stuff. of this stuff. <laughs> it, 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 it seems very common to me, and um, you know. So, for instance, many of them would say, would sort of poo-poo the idea that earnestness is is necessary, or you know, is a valuable quality, or something like that. In fact, they would they would sort of they're all saying give up the search and and any uh, you know earnestness or or pursuit of of any of this is just going to reinforce the idea that there's a seeker or someone pursuing it and that should all be dropped and and so on um and i don't you know i don't envy your job rick (laughs) it's a balancing act You know, because I mean, I have my perspectives and my biases. In fact, before this interview in the last week or so, I've uh, kind of boiled down some of the uh, what I consider to be my assumptions, uh, which may or may not be valid. And I, I want to go through them with you during the interview. Uh, but but that's one of them that it, that I sort of feel like there's a, there's often a confusion of levels in in which uh, someone will hear a teaching that is expressed from a certain you know, level of realization, Nisargadatta or Ramana or whoever, and uh, it's not necessarily applicable to the level that they are on, you know, but they'll kind of conclude that it is, and and maybe, you know, that'll cause them to, in some cases, it could cause a sort of a, a, an apathy or, or a feeling like it's not necessary to do anything or practice anything or anything else. I'll just sort of maybe assume that I'm already realized and that's all there is to it. And then you'll get them on your show. Well, I try to avoid that type. (laughs) So in your own case, um, you were, you know, by your own admission, quite a a drinker and taking drugs and living quite a wild life. And, uh, you know, I think there's some kind of, um, there's some value in, in telling that story for perhaps even for the sake of some people who are going through a similar thing or may, maybe feeling there's no hope for them. If you'd like to go into it a little well, bit. Well, as far as I'm concerned, there's always hope to the extent that things do change. You know, and my my story is very much an example of that. Uh, I was, uh, as you mentioned, from the age of uh, 16 until I was 35, mm-hmm. so for 19 years, uh, I was an alcoholic and a drug addict, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, those that disease, because I do consider it to be a disease of uh, the body and the mind, uh, progressed over the course of that 19 years till towards the end, uh, I was drinking a fifth of uh, liquor every day, doing a gram of cocaine every day, smoking a lot of powerful pot every day just to get through the day and this wasn't I wasn't partying I was just trying to survive Mm. and I was very very ill I I didn't realize it but my uh, wrists and ankles were swollen with alcoholic edema (laughs) I had lost uh, uh, fine control of my bladder so that there was a small leak of urine which uh, 
I caught with a wad of toilet paper shoved shoved down my pants that I had to change every half an hour or so. And this was my physical condition. Uh, and I, my mental condition was that I thought constantly about drinking and doing drugs. This was my life. Had you and, managed to go to college or finish your education? Oh, yeah. No, I, was, I managed to finish my uh, education. I managed to uh, start a business that uh, had some degree of success. And, uh, you know, through various... Um, strikes of, of good fortune. I managed to, to you know, uh, do okay for myself for a while. I was married to a, a woman who worked, mm-hmm. and <laughs> uh, I was able to get through life. Uh-huh. And the, I drank up the business, um, but I had a business partner, I was, and he continued to work. So I was able to, to live, I mean, just somehow uh, make it through. But uh, I was physically uh, and uh, spiritually bankrupt, totally, totally out of gas at every level. But I didn't yeah. know it, and I had no desire to to change my lifestyle. But at the end of a four-day drunk on Memorial Day, uh, in 1985, uh, I was laying in bed. Uh, after being up for several days trying to pass myself out and uh, I was unable to do so I was just laying there and uh, suddenly I felt this compulsion that had been part of me for many many years disappear and I didn't even I mean in its disappearance I realized its presence that, um, but I felt it go I physically felt it go and um uh, I realized in a, I had a blinding moment of clarity that my life had just changed. That something had just happened. And it was uh, about one o'clock in the morning and I realized that this way of living was over. So I threw myself a going away party. I went downstairs, I got the rest of the alcohol out of the cabinet and I, I just drank as much as I possibly could. Because <laughs> I, I decided I was going to go and turn myself in to uh, to AA in the morning, and so I, even though I didn't know anything about them, I I, I uh, did the rest of the coke that I had and and drank as much of the liquor as I could, and I was stone sober. Really, maddeningly sober. It seemed to have no effect on you. It had no effect. It was the most bizarre experience. I wonder and if that's because you had done so darn much that you were I kind had, of inured I to no it. I no explanation you know? for it. I wow. It was just something had, had radically changed. Huh. And so I, um, from that point to this, that compulsion, that absolute compulsion uh, has been gone. So you never drank or did drugs since then? No. Huh. It's amazing. I wonder what happened. You know, I mean... Uh, astrology people would say, "Oh, there, this happened on that particular day." You know, Jyotish, and and uh, some other types of people would say you were blessed by some celestial being or something. I mean, who knows? I mean, right. <laughs> and I'm I am unconcerned with explanations. Yeah, I am. Yeah. The whole focus of my life and my teaching is on what is, right, rather than the explanation of what is. All of which is a story. 
Yeah. So whether you can tell an astrological story, you can still tell a psychological story, you can tell, you know, an extraterrestrial story. <laughs> and it's all Everything. speculation. And and exactly. But yeah. the fact of what happened happened. You know. So did you join AA? Um as you as you may know, AA is an anonymous organization. Oh, so you're not supposed to say whether you joined? Well, it and one of its principles is that uh, people maintain uh, anonymity at the level of press, radio, and television and internet. I so see. I make no public claims to membership mm -hmm. in, in any organization, any anonymous twelve-step sure. organization. Although I certainly qualify for several. <laughs> huh. And I, yeah, I'm very familiar with with those programs and their principles, uh, and respect them very highly. Sure. So that was a new chapter in your life. So you must have wondered, okay, well, now what am I going to do? Well, what I wondered was, you see, what power in the universe could transform me like this? Yeah, that's what because, I was just wondering. You know, when I asked because, you that question. Yeah, because I always was of the opinion, as most people are, that we're really, you know, to varying degrees, uh, the masters of our destinies, that we make things happen, that we decide, and then we do them. And, and it was so clear to me that I had not been the one to do this. You know, I was not the source of this. Yeah. You know, there, even though my, my family and, and was congratulating me on such a good job at cleaning up my life and things, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I had not done this. So the question was, what had? This must be why this whole authorship of action theme is so central to you, so important. You know, you, you do emphasize it a lot. And it, well, like, that's that ha that's evolved over time. Yeah. You know, your whole your whole life is such a testament to that, though. You know, it's like boom, you you just got zapped somehow and and sh totally changed chapters. That's very much the case. So yeah. that that started me. Uh, looking at uh, spiritual explanations, you know, and I found uh, through a friend of mine, a, a fellow who I met who had a similar experience to me. He'd been struck sober one day and undesired un by himself. And uh, he had a, uh, this had, he had been sober for five or six Seven, ten years at that point, and he had uh, a vast spiritual library, hmm. and he invited me to graze in it. He said, "Take anything you like," and there were mystics of every persuasion. There were Christian mystics and and Sufi mystics and Zen and and uh, uh, so I started Taoist. I started reading all this stuff and started practicing. You know, doing all this various spiritual practices, and it, I mean, it was fun. Did you get any formal instruction, or were you just kind of getting it from the books? I was mostly getting it from the books, mm -hmm. and uh, then you know, I took up Tai Chi. I got formal Tai Chi instruction. Uh, I got some uh, advice from people about how to meditate, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I tried it all. It was like a like traveling through a, a grand bazaar. If you've ever been to Istanbul or you know, go through the Grand Bazaar and everybody's going, here, I have the best thing, try this. You know, no, over here, sir, I have the best thing, try this. And it's Chandi all... Chowk, I've been through Chandi Chowk in India. <laughs> okay. It's a market like that. Yeah, Crawford Bazaar. Well, yeah. They're all, you know, the idea is that there's all of these 
wonderful things to be explored and, mm -hmm. and tasted and tested and tried, and, and I tried a lot of them. I thought it was wonderful. It was a very exciting time. I did this for a couple of years before I met my guru. And certainly a lot more wholesome than what you had been imbibing before. Certainly so. <laughs> certainly. Yeah. And so um, tell us the story of how you met your guru. Uh, I met Ramesh um, after a friend of mine and I went to see uh, uh, Ramdas. You know, the, uh, sure. Um, be here now, Timothy. Guy. Yeah, be here now, guy. Right. Yeah, and he was he was raising money for the Seva Foundation at that time, mm -hmm. and going, running around giving talks, and and I was captivated by him. I thought he was great. He was humorous. He told great jokes, good stories. Got everybody oming and chanting together and stuff, which I had never done before, and it was, <laughs> it was very powerful and exciting. And I. I mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, I I enjoyed the, that experience, and uh, my friend got on their mailing list, mm -hmm. and the guy who brought Ramesh, my guru, to to the states, got that mailing list. He received a flyer. He showed it to me. He said, "We're look. They're only charging a buck. Why don't Why don't we go? What do we got to lose?" And we went to to see him, and he was. Uh, this was his first talk ever outside of India. In, I mean, his first public talk ever. And um, in India, he had people who were coming to see him in his home, but he had never made a public uh, um, uh, done a public talk. In the West, and when though. he when he did, he did it interestingly as he would uh, as a bank president. He stood at a lectern mm -hmm. and delivered a prepared speech on Advaita. And the noumenon actuates in the phenomenon, and the phenomenal manifestation is an aspect of, the, you know, <laughs> all of this. And I didn't understand a word this man said. He was not amusing. He was not Ram Dass. <laughs> and I didn't know what the hell he was saying. But uh, I went away on a business trip. I came back, and it was as if something had incubated and huh. while I was gone and he was still in LA uh, giving talks up in the Hollywood Hills and I went to see him again for some reason and when I saw him when he came in sat down in this guy's living room up in uh, and there were 20 of us or so and in that context uh, he was relaxed informal telling stories talking directly and I fell in love with him, uh, totally unexpectedly, um, uh, I was not, even though I'd been spiritually seeking for two years, I was far more a recovering alcoholic and drug addict with that mentality, you know, from that life, having lived that all those years, than I was an identity as a spiritual seeker. And so... Uh, to fall in love with some Indian guru <laughs> that's pretty bizarre but there it was it happened yeah I, I've done it myself I know what you mean I mean, it can be very powerful 
heart really opens and there's this powerful presence that you resonate with and it kind of infuses your your being and transforms your awareness and all kinds of things right I mean, it's a it's, it's a deep thing very powerful yeah and you were, you from that point you were probably pretty well hooked totally and M to this day that yeah, was yeah 23 years ago mm-hmm and so this thus began a long-term relationship. You, you, you saw him regularly and so on and so forth. And uh, It did indeed. It uh, was the beginning of the most uh, remarkable relationship, human relationship of my life. Did you spend time in India too? Yeah. I uh, met him in September. I was in India in March. Mm-hmm. And... To return to India every year, at least once, often twice, uh, for over 20 years until he died. Mm. And so, certainly, you wouldn't be like some of these teachers that you don't listen to who say, oh, you don't need a guru, and there's no need for gurus, gurus are all a bunch of baloney, because obviously you had one, and it was very uh, you know, transformational for you. All I would say is, I needed a guru. Somebody yeah. else may not need a guru. Lots of gurus are full of baloney. Mm-hmm. And whether you get one that's uh, uh, beneficial for you or one that screws you up royally, royally <laughs> is certainly not within your control. Yeah. In fact, one of the most uh, profound things I think Ramesh ever said was that the same source makes the false guru as makes the genuine one. Mm-hmm. And ironically, I've sometimes seen, it, for, at least as far as I can tell, that even people who have kind of established a deep relationship with someone that I would consider a false guru, by my standards, uh, have undergone tremendous progress. Absolutely. Uh, and vice that. versa. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there are stories in the Vedas of people worshiping a rock and going through huge, wonderful changes, you know. And there so, is a fellow named Ramana Maharshi who had a very deep connection to a mountain. Exactly. That's a big, that's a big rock. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's really hard to sort of make any kind of blanket judgments or statements or universal prescriptions or anything else. It's a very diverse uh, scene out there, and, and people gain benefit from all kinds of things. Yes, they do. Yeah. So um, perhaps you could give us a sort of a, just an overview of the course of your progress through your 20 years with Ramesh, you know, and how, what that interaction was like and what sort of changes or developments or awakenings you underwent in all that. The, the most profound change that uh, I can point to in my association with Ramesh was the movement from wanting to get something from him Mm -hmm. to wanting to give something to him. Hmm. And uh, my whole life has been about getting, getting more, and once I got it, keeping it, (laughs) making sure that you didn't get get it from me, that I was Uh smarter, uh, than you were, that I was more clever, that I, you know, all of that was about making sure that I got mine. Mm-hmm. And through my association with Ramesh, I had a very powerful 
realization and transformation in seeing that true freedom was in giving, not in getting. My cup runneth over, you know? I mean, once the cup is full, then it runneth over, and when one, get, one has something to give, and one naturally, spontaneously gives. Yeah. And, I, and paradoxically, probably gains more in the giving than they did during the, the getting phase. So was there sort of a, a night and day turning point or, jux, or a junction point between the getting phase and the giving phase? Was there a quick turnaround or was it sort of a gradual thing you couldn't really pinpoint? It, it occurred over actually the course of a three-week uh, visit to India where I, uh, my first visit to India where I went to spend time with Ramesh. Uh-huh. And uh, I was very fearful about what, because I, I knew I'd gone there to surrender to the guru. Mm-hmm. I was very fearful about what this guru might take from me. Uh-huh. I had a new car, a beautiful Chrysler LeBaron convertible. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what if he wants my car? <laughs> you know, presumably, complete and total surrender to the guru would include your car. Yeah. And I thought, what if he wants my money? What if he wants me to come stay with him? I, I was recently divorced. I had two young children. Half of, I had them half the time. What if he wanted me to come there to India and stay and be of service to him? What would I do? And I thought, what if he wants to have sex with me? What am I going to do? <laughs> All so of I, these have happened to people. <laughs> absolutely. And the question was, what? I mean, what if he wants to take any of these things from me? Yeah. What, would I, what would I do? And I was very afraid. And but I was compelled to go to continue to to go and engage with him. Uh, and at the end of that time, there in India with him, we were working on a. I became the publisher of his books, and uh, it, we were working on a manuscript. And at the end of that period of working on a manuscript. Uh, I realized that when it was time to go, that what I was thinking was no longer fearful, what is he going to take from me, but I was thinking, what can I give him? Mm-hmm. And in that sense of what can I give was real freedom. Because when you're willing to give everything, no one can take anything from you. You're, you're really free. You're All that fear, all that constriction, all of that worry and concern simply gone and I hadn't even realized what a burden I had been carrying around all of those years well I think he probably earned your trust you know you got to know him and you you came to realize that he wasn't going to ask for your car or you know your make you leave your kids or anything you, you kind of you know no, that's actually that's not the point no I'm sorry it's okay it wasn't it, it was not that he had gained my trust and I I was certain that he wouldn't do any of those things. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case at all. It was that it didn't matter. Uh-huh. That, that none of those things were of, of import, really. That what was going to happen was going to happen. What, and there was a real freedom in the, in the sense that it would be my pleasure, truly, truly my pleasure, to give whatever I could. Mm. <clears throat> so when you were with him... 
were you what were you doing were you just sort of working with him on books and listening to him to his talks and stuff like that or did he did he have you doing meditation practices or anything else like you know when he you know stuff like that no there he had no formal practices okay so uh my association with him became quite personal as well as i mean over the years i, yeah. I began to organize his tours into the united states and things i was his roadie and uh uh so through this process, I had the opportunity to spend time with him and got to know him as a man. Mm -hmm. And this was very important to realize that this understanding that he was talking about, this freedom that he was talking about, was not an airy-fairy kind of, you know, live-in-a-cave, remote type of uh, awakening or enlightenment. It was truly a uh, a understanding that was consistent with living, with life. Right. And that he had, he, he was a human being with, with qualities and characteristics, some of which I admired and some of which I thought weren't very attractive. But the, what I loved about him was that there was a total absence of what I today call the false sense of authorship. Mm -hmm. There was no sense whatsoever that he should or I should or anybody else should be different than they are. There was total acceptance of himself and everyone and everything around him. Do you feel that because that's the way he was and because you were in such close proximity to him that you sort of... A managed to attune yourself to that way of being, kind of like one tuning fork will get another tuning fork humming if it's close to it. Perhaps. Uh -huh. I mean, and that leads to a question about transmission. A lot of people talk about transmission in spiritual circles, that you, you should sit with a teacher and there will be some sort of subtle, you know, transference or transmission of, of energy or consciousness or something that will enable you to wake up. Uh, think, do you, does that do you use that terminology at all in I I don't have any shoulds whatsoever in, in my teaching. I don't say that anyone should do... No, I'm not anything. saying you should, but that some people say... Well, maybe I did say should, but... That, Actually, you did, yes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but uh, do you feel like that's a... Um, was the mechanics in your case, for instance, and is that the mechanics with the people that you teach? There's some sort of transmission or, or kind of resonance taking place that brings them in line or that brought you in line with living in presence and not taking authorship for action the resonance is a, a, a beautiful occurrence when it happens mm -hmm. and through the resonance there is for the disciple often an experience of that underlying truth if you will mm -hmm. and but it is it is actually not a transmission in the way that we often think of transmission by the guru. Because yeah, it's not guru, like some ball of light goes from here to there. But it's, it's not. It's certainly not willful in any way. Uh huh. I would say that just as Ramana experienced resonance with the mountain, mm -hmm. the mountain wasn't doing anything. Right. The disciple may experience resonance with this human object of a guru. But the guru isn't doing anything yeah. to, to, to affect that movement or transmission 
to the disciple. It is only in the presence of the resonance that that happens. And so you often have disciples say, oh, I said this with, with many of my friends. I, I, as soon as I had this experience with Ramesh, I called all my friends. So <laughs> I said, oh, look, there's this guy up in the Hollywood Hills. You, you, know, you go up there and you sit with him and you see through into the center of the universe. It's like amazing. And my friends all said, oh, you, you get to see through to the center of the universe? Let's go. And I said, yeah, it's incredible. It's amazing. And they'd come, and they'd sit. And halfway through, they're looking at their watches, and you know, it's clear. In the absence of the resonance, it's yeah. just a guy flapping his gums. You know, They just didn't have that same affinity that you had or yeah. whatever. The resonance Receptiveness. is the mechanism through which this understanding, this insight, this presence, if you like, is experience. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, theoretically, one of your friends could, could have gone and sat with some other teacher, and then something would have clicked with that guy, you know, because Absolutely. that was the one that they were sort of more um, attuned to or whatever. Absolutely. That happens. You see that a lot. People, you know, shop around a bit, and then they'll find one that really clicks for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, obviously, Ramesh was you and Ramesh were meant to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I like this resonance point. One more point on it is just that I, I thought of the analogy of like let's say a fire is burning brightly and you put a, a a dry twig near it, and the twig eventually catches fire also. And it's not like the fire did anything different than what it was doing. It was just burning. But but the proximity of the stick, you know, and the the affinity, so to speak, between the the big fire and the little dry stick, just got it going. That's right. Yeah. And a wet stick comes by the same fire, and nothing happens. Yeah. Or maybe it has to sit there a lot longer before it dries out. <laughs> or exactly. Yeah. So was there finally a point during this twenty-year relationship uh, with Ramesh uh, where you had? And again, terminology gets clunky here, but you know, an awakening, uh, an enlightenment, uh, an abrupt, irrevocable shift of some kind. Yes. Okay. Can we talk about that a little? We can. I don't talk about it a lot because there's nothing much to talk about. All right. Uh, as much as you're willing or, yes. <laughs> and, or able. Uh, only to the extent that there came a moment when that false sense of authorship died, and it was after I'd known Ramesh a couple of years. Uh, and uh, it, it was for me not a big deal I was not interested in becoming a teacher I was uh, my, my business resurrected uh, beautifully when I stopped drinking what was, your, what was your business by the I was way? in the uh, export business import okay. business. Uh-huh. and that uh, was doing very well. I was making a lot of money. I was being, I was able to use some of those resources to support my guru and to to support the teaching and and make this uh, what I felt beautiful, beautiful teaching available to people mm-hmm. uh, through the books and and the tours and and things. And so I was I was absolutely thrilled to do all that. I had no desire and did not feel that I had the temperament to be a teacher. 
Well, I'm not saying anything about becoming a teacher, although you did become one, but um, in, just in terms of the, the sort of subjective shift that happened for you at a certain point, was it dramatic? Was it abrupt? Was it, could you have marked it on a calendar, you know, this time of day on that date, this happened and that kind yeah. of thing? Yes. Yes. And so from that moment forward, that false sense of authorship was gone mm -hmm. and this organism no longer suffered. Mm -hmm. I, Wayne Lickerman, no longer, suffering no longer happened through this particular structure because there was no longer any sense that I was a separate, independent authoring entity. It was just, I mean, all of that whole, that whole structure was gone, but it wasn't replaced with something else. It wasn't replaced with this ecstatic sense of I am the universe, I am consciousness, I am the oneness, I am, you know, all of this is, is Maya and, and it doesn't exist and oh, the, the one true, you know, existence is, is the self and all that business. That wasn't the experience. But, and that's why I say I really can't talk about it because it, it, you can't talk about an absence. You only talk about the presence of something. Yeah, because that has qualities. I suppose maybe you could talk about, you know, I mean, if you shifted from, uh, you know, taking um, authorship of your actions to not doing that, there must have been a, a sort of a shift in the smoothness of of your behavior or your actions, the spontaneity, you know. Well, you uh, yes, to the extent that suffering was absent from them uh, and I, I suppose for a, a brief period there was an experience of what I would call the presence of the absence so to, to illustrate this I, I use an example that you've walked around today all day without a stone in your shoe presumably right <laughs> So if people asked you, what is your experience of the absence of the stone? What would you say? It feels normal. It's like, you know, you only notice, you only notice it if you've had the stone and then suddenly the stone is gone. Exactly. So there's yeah. no experience of an absence of the stone. The stone is absent, though. You've right. walked, the stone has been absent all day. Yeah. But yeah, you walk. But you know, metaphorically speaking, you walked for thirty-seven some odd years with stones in your shoes, and then all of a sudden the stones were gone. That's right. And so there was, and this is where it gets a little funky because uh, a stone. When you have a stone in your shoe, there is something there. Yeah. The realization, if we call it that, you know, this final understanding. Is, is not the removal of something substantive. It's the revelation. It, it was never there. Right. So in that case, it's more like, you know, uh, waking up from a hypnotic suggestion. If you, if you have a hypnotic suggestion that your clothes are on fire, you'll make the effort to put out, a lot of effort to put out the fire. As soon as the hypnotist snaps his fingers, you're not in any way any longer concerned with the fire you're not relieved that the fire isn't there 
it simply re, re, revealed to have never been there. Yeah, like if a tiger is chasing you in a dream or something, and then you wake up from the dream and there's no tiger, you know, and so it's exactly. not a problem anymore. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah. that's the. Uh, these are are very imperfect pointers to this absence. So anyway, so the absence was absent, and. Uh, I went along quite happily with my life after that and doing what I was doing, doing my business and raising my kids and being a service to my guru and doing all of that stuff. Um, at one, then, some, I don't know, how many years later, seven years later, six years later, uh, my business disappeared and overnight. I was a middleman, and I got unmiddled, and a, a very lucrative business just was gone, basically. And the one of the upshots of that was that uh, I had not been able to go to India all the time I was with Ramesh to, during Guru Purnima, which is uh -huh. the full moon period uh, when the disciples gather to honor the guru. Mm -hmm. the, the nature of the business I was in, I was always traveling. You know, elsewhere during that period, and I could never make it. Well, now without a business, I didn't have any business constraints, and I went to uh, Bombay, and uh, I was able to uh, sit with Ramesh, be with Ramesh during Guru Purnima, and uh, he sort of surprised me at the end of the Guru Purnima talk. He said, uh, "You should all come back tomorrow. Tomorrow, Wayne's giving the talk." Ah. <laughs> and this was news to me and not particularly good news to me. <laughs> but uh, I, and after everybody left, we were sitting having lunch, and I said, Ramesh, you know, uh, uh, thanks a lot, but, you know, I really feel that it would be impertinent of me to talk about your teaching when you're around here doing it so well. And, and he said, nonsense, my dear boy, nonsense. If they come, talk to them. And people some people came and asked some questions, and I answered the questions. And as far as I was concerned, that was the end of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I came back to L.A., and a couple of weeks later, I get a phone call from a guy who says, we got a little group here in Atlanta, and we hear <laughs> you're talking. How did they find out? <laughs> you know how they found out. Yeah, You're in this the, world. Through the grapevine, right? Through the grapevine. The drum beats had drummed. Yeah. And I said, sure, send me a ticket. Because I didn't have anything else going. Right. Send me a ticket and I'll come. And so that was 14 years ago or so. And the phone's been ringing uh, ever since. Pretty mm -hmm. cool. One thing leads to the next. Yeah. So I keep, uh, when the phone stops ringing, well, go do something else <laughs> so would you equate um, it sounds like you would equate authorship with suffering if, if you're Absolutely. if you're assuming authorship of action you're suffering and yes. vice versa yes yeah. well yeah they're, they're a package suffering and authorship are integrally um, they're integral with one another so I, I presume you would um, 
define pain and suffering differently? Because obviously, let's say you suffered a severe burn or something yes. like that, it would hurt a lot, but you would not. That's not what you would mean by suffering. That's absolutely correct, Rick. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you, it might be terrible, and you might be lying there in a hospital bed, and you yeah. know, but some. And uh, so, in what way? Would you not be suffering in a circumstance like that? How how would you somehow be free or independent of the the misery that such an experience would cause? Well, this is where we have to look at what I mean by suffering. Uh-huh. Uh, suffering is not intense pain. Intense pain is intense pain. Right. Suffering is the extension of this intense pain of the moment into the past and the future. Uh huh. So it is basically the story around what is happening. So it's like an embellishment of what it's is happening. an explosion of what is happening. Right. An explosion of the pain of the moment. And so it is, I am, the story goes all kinds of ways, but a typical story is, I am experiencing this pain because of something I did. Uh-huh. So this pain is my fault. And if, if I had done this differently, then I wouldn't be in this situation. Going the other way. This pain, what if this pain doesn't end? What if this pain keeps going? Will I be able to, to manage it? Will I be able to, to somehow survive it? Will I be able to, to hold it together if this pain continues? And so you've got the fear of the future and the regret for the past aggravating the pain of the moment and that explosion of the pain of the moment into the past and the future is suffering basically my teacher uh, who I'm no longer affiliated with but was my teacher for decades Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to say uh, Christ never suffered and that really got some people's hackles up but uh, you know but he's he's saying you know from his status that even going through that intense experience he didn't suffer and but you know some some experiences even if you don't embellish them with past and future and all that business are so intense and so horrific that uh it's hard to not see them as being a suffering situation i mean if you put me in that situation maybe you could speak for yourself if you can imagine yourself being on a cross uh even if you didn't embellish it with oh my god how did i get there and am i going to get down it would be you know it's hard to imagine not being completely overwhelmed or overshadowed by that. Maybe you wouldn't be. Maybe I wouldn't be. I don't know. But Well, the, the basic pointer holds that what the difference, the, the difference between the pain and the suffering is that the pain is in the moment. The pain may be all-consuming in the moment. I mean, the, the pain can be so much that there's nothing other than the pain. Right. But even then, all there is is pain. Mm-hmm. Total pain. Which is different, qualitatively different from the pain that is total plus past and future. Huh. You see, it is extended. It, it gets extended out of the moment. That's where the suffering lies. It also seems to me that just as you've been saying that, um, you know, there can be action with or without authorship. 
it seems like there could be pain with or without ownership. You know, this pain is happening to me, and therefore it's terrible. But if there is no sense of uh, a personal, you know, a person to whom the pain is happening, then maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's not suffering. Does does that make does does that jibe with your understanding? That's if you, if you stub your toe, I mean, you you know, you, let's say you really whack it, and it hurts like hell. Um, you know, is there a sense uh, that on some level, nothing got hurt? There's, you know, sure the the toe hurts, but on some level, I am untouched by this. No. No. Uh, what is the experience? That hurts like hell. That and that's all. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And that I mean that doesn't minimize it in any way. It hurts like hell. This sucks. Right. If it keeps going, I want to take an aspirin. I want to put some ice on it. I want to get go to the doctor. I do want to do something about the pain. Mm-hmm. But it's always of the moment. There isn't that. You see, it is the seeker who is says, "Oh, I'm truly not this this pain. I am the space in which the pain exists." That's a separation from what is. Huh. For the sage, there is no separation from what is. There is only what is. Well, I can I can see a seeker sort of doing that as a, a mood-making kind of thing. Oh, this doesn't bother me. I'm so spiritual. But I think there can also be a state where, you know, I mean, I fell off my bicycle one time. This is about 10 years ago. And I, I whacked my head. I had a helmet. but I, And I skinned my arm. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, it's painful and, and kind of intense but at the same time there there was a sort of I don't know there was a sort of witness to the whole experience that uh, and it wasn't a matter of my thinking about it I mean in the in the in the instant of that accident I wasn't I didn't have time to think about anything but there was a sort of a, a silence or, or a sort of a something there that wasn't getting affected by that you know what I mean yes do, do you see that as a sort of an intermediary stage or is okay. because that what you're describing is a space in which that involve, involving me, that false sense of authorship, didn't come in. So it, it, what there was was the pure experience. Mm-hmm. Simply that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you mean, you mean, so like if, I don't mean to belabor this, but I'm just trying to get this clear. So let's say, and I don't mean to also throw too many hypotheticals at you, but if you fell off your bicycle and skinned your arm on the road, um, you're saying that there wouldn't be any sort of silent witness to that or anything else. There would just be complete immersion in that experience as it happened, and then whatever, the, it would dis- the pain would subside over time. There would only be what happened. That's it. What exactly? No one there, witnessing there, it. There no might, one to whom it was be, happening. There might be pain associated with it, or there might not, uh-huh. depending upon the circumstances and, you know, who knows? There's physical conditions of shock and and other things in which there's, who knows? Yeah. But whatever is happening in that moment is happening. Mm-hmm. And there's no one to whom it is happening. It's just. What's happening? That's it. I'm, t- I'm not there trying to no, be... Uh, there is no separate, independent one for whom it is happening. But right. it's definitely happening to Wayne. It's not happening to Rick. 
Yeah, it's not happening. It's not happening to the tree over there or something like that. It's happening to Wayne. Exactly. So there's a recognition. There's identity. I mean, there's There's a sense of self as mm -hmm. Wayne, who this is happening to. Right. But not as not as we think of Wayne as a drop. So we we're thinking in drop sense. But Wayne as the wave is simply a, a shape of ocean for whom it is happening. So you could really say it's just happening to the ocean, this particular aspect of the ocean. That's what it, you know, that's happening in this particular wave, but it, it's really just the ocean is it's one of the things the ocean is going through. Right. I would take out the just and okay. say it is happening to this aspect of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Yes. Named Wayne. Yeah, that's good. I think that's about as clear as I can get that without being too <laughs> too, too obsessive about it. Right. Um, there's another thing I heard you say in one of your talks where you were talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, you were talking about the sense that the whole universe is operating through you, something like that. Do you remember making such a statement? Yes. Okay. And, you know, when I heard you say that, I, th I thought of a question which would be that I presume you're meaning sort of uh, the kind of unmanifest essential aspect of the universe. Like, you know, it's not like if I'm doing something, the Andromeda galaxy is, is operating through me, but that intelligence or that presence or that being which is fundamental to or integral to or essential to every bit of the universe is functioning through me just as it's functioning through every other expression. Again, the wave and ocean thing. Exactly. So it's just another way of saying that the ocean is the, is the movement of the wave. Right. Good. Okay. Um, I have some questions here that I told you earlier about that I have sort of tried to distill down into as kind of concise a way as possible that I think are kind of core questions for me and, and might maybe for a bunch of other people. Let's see if we can run through some of them. Um, okay. can, yeah. Can we take a, a five-minute break here? Absolutely. So I've, uh, I've written down some questions here that I'm going to ask an, probably a number of my guests, um, but I want to run them by you and see what you think. These are questions which I sort of feel, I've done about 80 of these interviews now, and, and these keep coming up in one form or another, and I think they reflect some of some areas where I'm trying to clarify my own understanding, and probably many people are trying to do the same. Um, first of all, a terminology question that I probably should have asked you in the beginning. Um, do you use the terms awakening and enlightenment uh, interchangeably or synonymously, or do you regard those as two different things? Uh, I have started using the terms uh, separately. Okay. How would you distinguish between them? Uh, uh, awakening, I'm, I've begun to use the term awakening to describe that point at which the, uh, there is a realization of the unity of things. That uh, you literally wake up and see that things are not as you thought they were and that you begin to glimpse you have a glimpse of the fact that um, there is an underlying unity mm -hmm. and you gain at least uh, an 
uh, an initial experiential and often intellectual uh, understanding of the fact that we are not uh, separate, independent, autonomous entities. The Enlightenment is uh, when that, that false sense of separation dies. So that's the distinction I make. So the awakening might be, it sounds like you're saying awakening is a more preliminary thing where you're getting glimpses and, and insights and so on and so forth, but it might be unstable, it might be intermittent, whereas enlightenment is a kind of a more final, sh- permanent well, shift of some kind. Uh, I, the way I use the term, the awakening is the point at which all of that process starts of flipping and flopping back between insight and, and you know, yeah. the in separation. That is the that marks the beginning of that, hmm. and uh, enlightenment, I suppose, would be marking the ending of that whole. Huh. I heard a Tibetan proverb recently, which I'll probably keep saying until people get sick of it. But it's, don't mistake understanding for awakening. Don't mis no don't ex- don't mistake understanding for realization. Don't mistake realization for liberation. Somehow, kind of. Uh-huh. Kind of that one kind of hit home. Um, okay, so I think you might have answered my my second question, which was that um, in your own experience, has awakening been a sort of an on-off, black-white kind of a thing, or are there various uh, progressive stages of development or deeper deepening or clarification or uh, of awakening that that take place, you know, up until a point where there's some kind of final demarcation. Um, I think you just answered that, but any care to elaborate at all, or is that it? Okay, good. Um, all right. Uh, what impact does enlightenment have on behavior, do you think? Can a person be, quote-unquote, enlightened and yet be doing unethical or immoral things, or does such behavior indicate a lack of development in certain areas? Uh, to me, enlightenment and behavior are totally unlinked. Mm-hmm. Well, not totally, but essentially unlinked, uh, particularly in regards to moral, what we consider to be moral or immoral behavior, which is uh, has to do with the values of the group. Cultural things. Cultural things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what is, you know, immoral in one group is perfectly fine in another. <laughs> it's true. So, I mean, you know, in some societies it's fine to have five wives or something, you know. Absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, so, what we tend to confuse are sages and saints. Hmm. Now, uh, saints are beings for whom their behavior embodies the highest values of the group. So, a saint in one group is not a saint in another, but a, a saint in a particular group is a saint because their behavior embodies the highest values of that group. Somebody like Mother Teresa or somebody like that, yeah. Right. Now, if you read the writings of saints, saints often suffer. Yeah. They suffer because, I mean, they think bad thoughts. You know, they, they, they aren't as wonderful internally as they are externally. That's precisely what Mother Teresa said. I mean, she said, you know, at the end of her life, she had all these, she confessed to having all these doubts and lack of any kind of inner experience and so on and so forth. Right. You know? So yeah. that's, 
so that's the condition of the sage. Mm-hmm. It's all about behavior. The sage, in my, this is my definition, the sage is someone for whom the false sense of authorship, of being a separate, independent, authoring being, has died. And that has, what we, when we understand what the source of behavior is, this is a whole other aspect of the teaching, of course, but when you start to look at what makes you behave as you do, when you realize that it is a condition of the universe, of all of these factors of your genes and your conditioning and of all of these, these factors uh, that produce behavior, then the, 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 even the notion that sage uh, will bring a particular kind of behavior is, is ludicrous. Although, isn't there, couldn't, mustn't there be some correlation, however loose? I mean, you couldn't have a, a, a Charlie Manson or a Jeffrey Dahmer or an Adolf Hitler or somebody who was a sage, or could you, by your definition of the word sage? In the strictest, in the very strictest sense, that would theoretically, I imagine, be a possibility. That, but I mean, obviously, it's, it doesn't seem to be the case very often. It's highly unlikely, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But theoretically, behavior and enlightenment are unrelated. Mm-hmm way out on the fringes of the bell curve in other words <laughs> the likelihood that you could get somebody like that who was actually self-realized yeah but the, the point being once again that behavior and enlightenment are not linked hmm. now where this gets interesting is what goes on internally you see because the what we're really describing is a absence of internal involvement in in what is what is taking place, and so you you a sage, for example, will never. There's no possibility of hatred arising in the sage, because hatred is a, a product of the sense that the other person shouldn't have done what they did. Hmm. So you could never hate someone, but you could intensely not like them because that's a a function of your nature. What you, you like and don't like. Because you don't like what they're doing. Exactly. But it's about, I don't like it. It's not, yeah. they shouldn't have done it. Re- so you recognize that they do. people do what they do, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to like it. And it includes yourself. You do what you do. Right. In accordance with your nature. And so your likes and dislikes are also part of that same function. Yeah. This is one of those teachings, I think, which it's necessary to be a little careful. Um, there, there's, there's a verse in the Gita, it's chapter 4, verse 18, where it says, Let not the wise man create a division in the minds of the ignorant who are attached to action. Established in being, he should direct them to perform all actions, duly engaging in them himself. And, you know, I mean, one could sort of take the attitude that, well... I just do what I do according to my nature and I happen to rob banks, you know, like Bonnie and Clyde or something. Um, sure. And and there's really no one robbing the bank. You know, I'm I'm not the actor. I don't take authorship of my action. That could be used as a sort of a, an alibi or an excuse for someone. 
who wasn't genuinely awakened. So? So yeah. they use it as an excuse. Yeah, but I guess, well... And I, I, the judge says, well, it's consciousness operating through me, throwing you in jail. Exactly. So, <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. Huh. All right, well, that's interesting. Um, it's it's this has been a bit that's it's been a big one for me to sort of deal with because i i was sort of raised with the understanding that there is a correlation you know that people that, that, <laughs> that, that the quality of one's action or behavior is a reflection of the, the the quality of one's consciousness or the level of one's consciousness yes well, well we're all interested in self-improvement and like enlightenment as the ultimate self-improvement where you become perfect is a very desirable notion yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Haven't yeah. seen too many examples of it. Uh, um, do you feel like, here's another question for you, totally shifting gears here. Uh, yeah. Do you feel like, uh, at least for some people, meditation is useful after awakening? Could, a, could, a, could continuing a meditation practice, even if one enjoys it, uh, actually be an impediment? to a, a person at, at, at a certain stage or is there is this another one of those things where there's really no correlation it's a matter of individual proclivity no but i mean of course the outcome of a particular practice is variable uh ramesh tells the story of a guy who came to see him uh in, i think the second year he came to the states and the fellow came up to him at the break and said do you know how long I meditate every day? And she said, no, I don't. I meditate 14 hours a day. Uh -huh. The guy was bursting with spiritual pride. Yeah, yeah. Bursting. Right. He was obviously, Ramesh, the ever-practical Ramesh said, man, obviously didn't have to work for a living. <laughs> yeah, right, good point. <laughs> so he, he said, he must have been living in a, you know, some kind of, spiritual community that you know facilitates this he said and he must be like the number one you know meditator in his community you know uh -huh. he's up to 14 hours a day and the next guy's <laughs> only at 12 <laughs> and he's looking over his shoulder all the time to make sure that nobody else is creeping up on him you know so in this case meditation was simply something another thing for the false sense of authorship to grasp and feed on. Right. Whereas for someone else, meditation would brings insights that reduces this false sense of authorship. But the the meditation itself is neither inherently good nor bad. Different strokes for different folks. At moments. Yeah, yeah. And what may serve you very well at a particular point in your process doesn't serve you at all later on, or vice versa. Yeah, there's the saying that you know you're using a boat to cross a river, and if you've if you've reached the other shore, the boat may actually sort of be an impediment. Might as well get out of it. And if you pick it up and put it on your back and carry it into the desert, yes. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> um, I'd like to read a little bit of a longer thing. This will just take me a, a minute or two to read and uh, have you kind of riff on it. Um, it's, it's along the themes of, of there being the possibility of further unfoldment <coughs> or further development even after 
realization, which some teachers and sages say there are, and I'd like to get your feedback on this. This is by uh, Swami Ramdas. I'm not sure exactly who he is, but I came across this. It said, first, by the four stages of God consciousness. First, by total surrender, the ego is dissolved completely. Egolessness means realization of the all-pervading spirit or God. Uh, we know that we and spirit are one. Second, after that comes the universal vision. I'm no, sorry. Rick, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to stop you. Because oh, please I'm, do. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to comment on somebody else's teaching. Okay. No problem. Well, just in a nutshell, it's the idea that you know there can be further unfoldings or stages or... Uh, you know, and, and forget anybody else's teaching. I mean, in your own experience, since '87 or '89 or whatever it was when you had that shift, have you felt like there's still some sort of enrichment or depth or clarification or uh, wh however you want to put it uh, taking place? No, because what you're describing is the clarification, the de deepening of something. What I'm talking about as the final the, the final enlightenment the final mm -hmm. stage is an absence it isn't the presence of something that can deepen and enrich and, and move on and get bigger right. and better and, and more so stellar. the absence it's, can't get any more absent once it's once absent it's absent it's absent yeah <laughs> and so there can't be any sort of like refinement of perception or unfold. Oh, there's or, all kinds or, of refinements that happen within manifestation. But that's oh, okay. Not, I mean, no good. That's what I was getting at actually. Yeah. That that you know, I I I realize that with with regard to the sort of the unmanifest quality of it, there can't be any further, you know, polishing of that. But within manifestation, do you see kind of an an infinite range of possibilities in terms of, you know, unfoldment of the heart or whatever you know oh absolutely okay the, the human organism is capable of of all kinds of changes yeah good but it has nothing to do with enlightenment okay i got it you. just has to do with the changes that are part of are part of being alive yeah which could go either way, I suppose. I mean, you know, certainly Ramdas had a stroke. I don't know if he's enlightened or not, but it, that that sort of thing could happen. Or conversely, there could be, you know, sort of a, a refinement of the physiology, which would result in, uh, on the manifest level, some sort of enhanced whatever. Absolutely, but it has nothing or... whatsoever to do with enlightenment. That's gotcha. It's kind of an icing on the cake kind of thing, which has nothing to do with the cake. Yeah. Good. Now that's a, that's a good point. I mean, because you know some people do sort of insist that no, that's it. Nothing, nothing can be further enhanced or refined or whatever. But um, that didn't make sense to me, and I, I like the way you put it. Huh. Good. Well, uh, I don't have any more questions at the moment. Do you uh, have anything that, from your side, you, you know, kind of? Uh, like to say to people that I we haven't touched upon uh, anything uh, no. anything whatsoever not a thing okay good well this this has been enjoyable um, and you still travel around and give talks people send you tickets so they do they yeah do. I'm on the road about half the year now great so if someone wants to have you come to their area they could get in touch and I'll, I'll have a link to your website and everything on on mine um, 
and do you also do i also you know there's a lot of stuff of yours on youtube and uh, and on your website that people can listen to which i i recommend i think it's very instructive i even listened to that that whole series when you were in moscow even with the the russian translation oh, it was quite, kind oh. of enjoyable the russian translation gave me a moment to sort of let it sink in you know uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, and do you do actual consultations with people over skype or anything like that yep. or mainly just group things yep in person yes yeah Okay, good. Well, thanks, Wayne. It was a pleasure, Rick. Yeah, I hope I've asked pertinent questions and made this a, uh, you know. I imagine your viewers will make the determination on that one. They will. I mean, my greatest sin is talking too much. I sometimes get flack for people. Why don't you just shut up and let the guy talk, you know? But <laughs> hopefully I haven't done too much of that. I, think, I, don't, I didn't experience that. Good. Well, thanks. So um, to my listeners, I'll conclude. I've, I've been speaking with Wayne Lickerman. Um, I'll be linking to his website on batgap.com where you can go to see all the interviews that I have done and will be doing. You can sign up for email notification uh, every time a, a new interview gets put up, if you like. There's also a discussion group there. There's a link to a podcast if you like to listen to this sort of thing on your iPod. Um, and uh, that's about it. So thank you very much, Wayne, and thank you, listeners or viewers, and we'll see you next time. Take care, Rick. Thanks, Wayne.